Hey Marty, how's your semester wrapping up? Ugh, I'm just finishing up my grading on our last exam in evolutionary medicine. Final grades are due tomorrow. Ugh, me too. I'm in the middle of grading final exams for genetics. How's that going? Uh, it's going okay, but I've been thinking a lot about how we teach certain topics and how we study them. Give me an example. Well, in quantitative genetics, we teach that total phenotypic variation in a population can be broken down into that which is due to the heritable component, think genes, and that which is due to the environment, and that which is due to the interaction between genes and the environment. Ah, yes, the fundamental formula of quantitative genetics. But what's wrong with it? There's nothing really wrong with it. I don't have a fundamental problem with the approach. But in natural populations, it's just such a boring way of viewing the environment's effects on the phenotype. Ah, I see where you're going. The environment isn't just a source of phenotypic variation and noise. It can also cause predictable changes in phenotypes. And one of our favorite biological ideas, phenotypic plasticity. Exactly. For example, the environmental term explains why Daphnia develops spines when exposed to predator cues, why plants grow larger leaves in the shade, or why animals can adjust their physiology and acclimate to seasonal changes in temperature. We well recognize that these examples of adaptive plasticity partly arise because natural selection acts on genetic variation for different forms of plasticity in populations. But incorporating this plasticity into models of evolutionary change, that remains a big challenge. One problem is that the organism can also modify its environment via this plasticity. This interplay between the environment causing phenotypic variation and organisms changing their environment can impact the strength of selection and lead to unexpected evolutionary dynamics. The most popular evolutionary models tend to ignore these feedbacks. Or assume their effects are too small to matter. And instead just focus on how a trait changes from one generation to the next based on the strength of selection and how heritable the trait is. The catch is that fitness, heritability, and the strength of selection are all very context dependent. So, in stable or controlled environments, our traditional models work really well. But in the messy natural world, they can start to break down. Especially when the environment that the parents' generation experiences is different from the environment experienced by their offspring. Our guest today is Sonia Sultan, who is the Alan M. Dax Professor of Science in the Department of Biology at Wesleyan University. Sonia spent her career thinking about the interplay between genetic and environmental factors in evolution. We talked to Sonia about her views on plasticity and how they've changed over time. We also focus on a recent paper she published with Mike Wade in the journal Evolution and Development, where they incorporate how organisms modify their environments into the price equation. The price equation, one of the most commonly used models of evolution, has two terms. The first term models a population's response to selection by estimating the relationship or covariance between trait values and fitness. The second term in the price equation deals with all the complicating forms of the environment, including how environmental change impacts fitness, but also genetic forces, including epistasis. This second term has typically been ignored or assumed to be constant. In the paper, Sonia and Mike asked what the implications are if we reverse our thinking and hold the first term constant, and then explore different scenarios for how organisms might adaptively change or select the environments they occupy. They found that when there is genetic variation for traits that modify the environment, the feedback between organisms and their environments can actually accelerate adaptation. While their model represents a first attempt to incorporate some of the complexity that has long been recognized in natural populations, it provides a really exciting way to start thinking about old ideas in new ways. 
Before we get started with Sonia, please remember we're a nonprofit and the big biology coffers are getting dangerously low. We want to keep making the show, but we need your help. To help us, you can become a patron at www.patreon.com bigbio. There you could donate one, two, three, ten, twenty-five, or even fifty dollars a month. We're also revising our Patreon tier benefits, and we'll share more info about those soon. Or if you prefer, go for a one-time donation on our webpage, www.bigbiology.org. All amounts are welcome. And if the holiday season has you strapped for cash, no worries. Support us by telling a friend about the show or just talking about us on your social media feeds. Or if you're looking for holiday gifts, buy that Big Biology Superfan a t-shirt or throw pillow from our Red Bubble store. You can access that store on our homepage. Remember, Big Biology team members Molly, our producer, Dana, our social media expert, and Keating, our artist, are all supported by you. To keep the show going, please give if you can. I'm Cameron Gallenbor. And I'm Marty Martin. And you're listening to Big Biology. Sonia Sultan, thanks so much for joining us today on Big Biology. We're really looking forward to talking to you today about your research, uh, your perspectives on phenotypic plasticity, niche construction, and the implications for adaptive evolution. So to begin, let's start off with one of our favorite topics and one of your favorite topics, plasticity. How did you start thinking about plasticity and evolution? I think you were you know, doing it long before it was sort of fashionable. Where did that come from and you know, what was your inspiration? I was plasticity when plasticity wasn't cool. <laughs> yes, that is very true. Uh, so honestly, my inspiration came in part because when I began graduate school, which I did because I was just sort of passionately curious about organisms and especially plants. When I began graduate school, I had very little background in science because instead of majoring in biology, I had studied history and philosophy of science, mostly because I am a stubborn, rebellious person and I do not like memorizing stuff out of textbooks. And after spending a week as a bio major, I thought, no, this is not for me. Blank this. I'm going to do something more interesting. So I arrived to graduate school at Harvard without much in the way of training. And, you know, that was very difficult in a lot of ways. I had a lot to learn. On the other hand, it left me free in a certain way to start with questions rather than to already have been given answers to them. So, you know, I would walk to the bio labs and there's weeds growing along the, near the sidewalk as I walk. And I would see the same species growing in the sun that looks a certain way. And then a foot away from that, there's another individual of the species growing in a little shade for some reason under a little tree. And it looks very different. And I thought like, well, what is that? Because I was learning and had learned, you know, the very basics you know, Ernst Meyer's book had been my textbook as an undergrad, and everybody tells you, you know, you get the genes for sun phenotypes and the genes for shade phenotypes, and they're different genes, and that's how you get different phenotypes. And I knew enough to say, well, look, these things are a foot away from each other. They're not going to be different populations. What's going on here? You know, and I would ask a couple of my professors, and they would say very kindly, which is the way people spoke to female graduate students in those days, you're confused. Let me explain this to you. And they would explain it. And I would think, well, no, 
because, as I said, rebellious and stubborn. So I started reading more and thinking more, and I was both relieved and also slightly disappointed to find that someone had thought about this before me, and that was Anthony Bradshaw, who had published, you know, many years before, a paper on phenotypic plasticity in plants. A beautiful paper, which I actually had the privilege of asking him about subsequently, and where he told me that, you know, he had written that paper, and no one had touched it for like two decades. No one ever cited it, because people did not know what to make of that concept, in the, you know, the heady heights of the modern synthesis and the sense of power that people had gained in the 1960s and 70s with the idea that once we know the genes, we've got the whole story. So that's a very long answer to your question, I guess. So I became interested in how, what's this other thing that's going on? How does it fit our understanding of the evolutionary process and the role of genes? What is the role of the environment and how come no one ever talks about it? If this is real, if this property of flexibility or plasticity genuinely influences phenotypes, that's got to affect natural selection. So how does this work? What does this mean for the evolutionary process? Is it less deterministic than everyone is telling me? Is there some play in that process as a result of what these individual organisms are doing? Yeah, so... You've published extensively on plasticity, and, and I think a lot of your ideas kind of came together in your 2015 book, Organism, Environment, and Ecological Development, that I have my copy here. And so as I read the book, it was really interesting because I, I could really see sort of this kind of arc in your thinking, and I, I could detect sort of some changes maybe in some of your early work versus kind of the more recent work and how you thought about plasticity. And I know this is a bit of an open-ended question, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, if as you reflect back on your thinking, are there points along that path that were like pivotal that, you know, you kind of influenced you and made you think about plasticity's role in evolution a little bit more differently? Yeah, thank you for that question. When I started, there was an existing framework, which of course was from quantitative genetics, which is the idea of genotype-environment interaction. That was a way to, to sort of plant your feet and start thinking about how the response of an organism to different potential environments could be incorporated into an understanding of natural selection, or let's say the evolutionary process more broadly. So G by E interaction is an idea. First of all, it identifies two categories, the G and the E. They're, they're completely autonomous. They're completely separate from each other. And by looking at an interaction between those two things, you can conceptualize the environmental response pattern, what's called the norm of reaction. You can conceptualize that as a property of the genotype. In other words, you can say a genotype has evolved to express phenotype A in environment A and phenotype B in environment B. And you can still sort of suck that response pattern inside the genome. You can, you can say it is an internal, self-contained program for a response. And that is how everybody thought about it then, I believe, certainly most people, that is how I thought about it. So what that does is it lets you use the tools and the models for thinking about sort of conventional evolutionary change but you substitute for the idea that a gene simply determines a trait, a certain state of a trait, 
You substitute for that the idea that the gene determines a pattern of response. And when you do that, a lot of problems go away because you can stay inside the framework of thinking that a gene for that thing, like a gene for that response, is still a sort of autonomous actor, biologically speaking. So that idea, the plasticity is a property of the genome, is, is something that I assumed. And it made it possible to talk to other evolutionary biologists, essentially, about plasticity, and it allowed people to think of plasticity as kind of a special case. It's like, wow, so that's cool. Some things are plastic. Okay. You know, people are okay with that. So we kind of pushed the boundary out a little bit. A lot of people doing working on that, starting probably with Steve Stearns at the very end of the 1970s, or really starting with Anthony Bradshaw. You know, people kind of pushed the boundary out. It's like, okay, this is acceptable evolutionary biology. We're, we're still in the zone where we understand this is how it works. The genes are what's important. For a good while, I studied, in my lab, we studied the response of individual plants of different genotypes where we create genetic copies of a set of genotypes, in our case drawn from natural populations because I'm interested in how these properties evolve in the real world, we would do experiments where we vary the conditions in which individuals develop and see what they do. And it's a way of just kind of looking at what, what's the repertoire of response? Like how, how far can one genotype go? And that was super fascinating and I did that for, for a good while. And then it became clear that another interesting question was the question whether the different environments of that generation carried over to influence the characteristics of the next generation. In other words, are there inherited effects of these different environmental conditions that these plants were reared in? And that, at the time when I started doing it, which was in the very beginning of my postdoc work, very unconventional. I sent a paper, for example, I sent the paper to Ann Knapp. From the experimental and analytical point of view, the paper was fine. There was nothing wrong with this work. It was strong work. And honestly, I think they had no idea what I was doing. And they just, they're just like, no. I mean, the rejection was like, no. <laughs> they didn't even have it reviewed. So I'm like, wow, like this, I've hit a nerve here. Why? This is just what the plants are doing. So anyway, so of course I love to break, I love to make people upset. So I love to make them like, you know, cling and, and freak out and ask new questions. So I dug into this transgenerational stuff. And after a few years, I had a few very good at the time undergraduates, one of them now finishing his PhD at Columbia. And they did a little project in the greenhouse where we had plants that we had reared in sun and in shade, and they were growing the offspring of these plants to see if they showed any differences. And yes, they did. And we were looking at the data. They had been plotting the data by looking at the average effects of, of the shade parent environment versus the sun parent environment on the seedlings. And I said, what if we plot this as a norm of reaction? Where we, because we had grown the seedlings also in both sun and in shade. What if we plot the seedling norm of reaction, that is the seedling's pattern of response for a given genotype for both sun and shade, and we plot the norm of reaction when the parent was grown in the sun, and we plot the norm of reaction when the parent was grown in the shade. And because this is all inside very, very highly inbred genetic lines, we were looking at a plot where we had a genotype and two different environments that the individuals had grown in, these are the seedlings, and instead of one norm of reaction, there were two, because 
the norm of reaction was very strongly influenced by the parents' environment. And I looked at that data plot and I said, well, the norm of reaction is not a property of the genome. There was no other way to look at it. Okay, so at that point, what's happening is something different. Previously, the understanding, my understanding, was that an individual's response to its environment was something that was built into its, its genetic heritage, its, its DNA sequence. That result showed that instead, the norm of reaction of a given genotype is itself influenced by something else, in this case, by inherited environmental information. So at that point, it, it started to make more sense to me to think about the expression of a phenotype, the way an individual develops, as an active kind of regulatory process that's happening in that individual as a result of a bunch of information, the genetic factors that are built into it, the environmental influences it is receiving as it develops in the moment and the present, and other information it has inherited through, could be through, you know, cytoplasmic inheritance from what we call maternal effects, which are when the composition of a seed or an egg is different depending on the, the maternal individual's environment. That's nothing new. We've known about that for, you know, 100 years. Or what we now know to be epigenetic effects, that is to say molecular changes to the DNA, well, to the, we'll say the hereditary material, you know, to the DNA um, methylation marks or chromatin changes, packing, 3, 3D changes, small RNAs that are going to turn stuff on and off. All of those factors are inherited along with the gene sequence, right? And they affect, you know, not what the genes are, but what the genes do. So if you think about an individual, a developing individual, it's got all that information and it needs to integrate, or let's say it's evolved to integrate that information in some way, presumably in a way that in the past contributed to its success. So at that point, what you're looking at is the evolution of developmental and regulatory systems that are hugely context-dependent, complex, responsive, flexible systems. And that is a different picture. It is simply a different picture than the picture we carry around of, you know, alleles, big A and a little a. Yeah. Would you would you say, Sonia, so like my charitable read of this, everything that you've said, you know, you, you talk about molecular epigeneticists. That's a big part of what my lab does. So I'm fully on board with thinking that way. But would you say that some part of the holding on in traditional evolutionary biology, I mean, it comes from success, right? That has been an incredibly powerful way to understand basic evolutionary biology. We have made unquestionable progress, but we made practical progress, too. Right. I mean, in terms of our, our food supply, the way that we do medicine, there's a lot of utility in that mindset. So success begets success. That's that's probably a big part of the explanation of why we are where we are. Not to say that it's a full explanation, as you well articulated, but to what extent do you think that we remain in that same place just because those efforts have been successful? Yeah. So part of the answer is yes, certainly. In evolutionary biology, our understanding of the role of genes is based on insights to genetics circa 1924. You know, Sir Ronald, yes, amazing statistician, great. You know, I, I have no problem with what happened 100 years ago. I think it's fantastic. I respect a lot of those early evolutionary biologists. 
thinking about genes as sort of individual determinants of outcomes is a very, very powerful approach for certain systems, particularly systems where the environment is controlled. So for example, you mentioned crops. The environment in which, let's say, modern engineered versions of crop varieties are super successful and high yield are highly controlled environments where there is a lot of sun, a lot of water, typically through irrigation, and a lot of nitrogen through fertilizers, chemical fertilizers. The use of fertilizer has increased whatever it is, a thousand percent in the last 20 years, creating all kinds of problems. So because we control the environment, then these manipulations can result in an organism that is very successful at making a certain desired phenotype in that environment. Yes. The medical side of it, I think, is a very different question. That would be a long conversation in itself. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, success begets success, and that approach works when the environment is controlled. Whether that understanding of the role of genetic variation is applicable to the natural world, that is to say, to the way organisms actually evolve, and to what is actually going to happen to them out there, is a very different question. And in fact, what we're discovering, I think, is that that approach, the idea, for example, in conservation biology, the idea that conservation genetics, that looking at genetic variation in itself is all we need to do to be able to predict success and failure of taxa, it's not working. And instead, I think people are much more interested right now on understanding the plasticity side of it. Because right now, Things are happening so fast in the way we're changing the, the habitats of everything on the planet. And whatever habitat it is, no one's undoing that. So every habitat is changing right now very fast. And every organism has to either evolve or, or blink out. There's no third option. So right now, I think what we're seeing is that people are asking how much plasticity is in these systems to persist long enough to evolve. So I have two questions, but I think one comment, which is, you know, I, I'm completely in agreement with both of your comments, but I also feel like, you know, part of the success, you know, the, the foundations of evolutionary biology in population and quantitative genetics and the, the mathematical rigor is obviously a bit of a, an abstraction. You know, it has to be, right, because of the complexity of trying to model things that are highly context-dependent. I mean, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, at some level, I think Fisher was very dismissive of plasticity. And maybe there are some also, without going into the details of Fisher's political views that maybe went along with that. But, you know, I think Wright and Haldane were keenly aware of the variation. And then, you know, there have been these attempts, Waddington, Schmalhausen, and others, you know, more recently, also Mary Jane Westreberhard, bringing a lot of these ideas of trying to kind of incorporate the complexity. So I think it's not an easy problem to solve, but at least being aware of it, I think, is, is a good one. So, yeah, I think that that was my one comment. When you say it's not an easy problem to solve, which problem? I think in general, the context dependency and the dynamics of organisms as complex systems that have a lot of redundancy and are taking in information 
and transforming it into physiological, developmental, behavioral kinds of responses. Marty and I argue a lot about is that, you know, for me, I think um, there's a lot of cases where these responses aren't necessarily adaptive. But that also gives an opportunity for selection to act. And so, you know, where does, it, where does adaptive plasticity come from? It's not just necessarily inherent part of, you know, genomes, but it, it is something that's subject to selection. And so it comes from the variation within populations. And I think one thing that we just don't really spend enough time talking about is what is it that maintains the variation? One of the things that's been really interesting for me is that as I've been talking about things in terms of not just interaction, but entanglement, that is to say, as I've been grappling with the difficulty of recognizing how complex these processes are and how complex the causal relationships are, I find myself fortunate to be talking more and more to philosophers of science. Most scientists think philosophy of science is irrelevant to what they do. But for me, I've come up against some things that I don't really have, that I need more language for as a scientist. And one of those things has to do with how we think about causation. So, you know, the way the scientific method really is framed and the way most of our explanations are framed is with the idea that there's a kind of a one-way arrow from a cause to a certain effect. That is, for example, the idea behind a knockout strategy for looking at the effects of genes to go back to the success breed success idea, right? And that, of course, is what Dawkins built so dramatically into his view of the world by proposing that everything, that every aspect of the phenotype, the, the beaver building its dam, is an extended phenotype coming out of the gene. It's like coming out of the nucleus, the big arrow, right? And, and it's a huge relief to be able to say, oh yes, all of this complexity, all of this context-dependent expression, all of that, well, you can trace it all back to a gene, potentially a selfish gene, or perhaps a, a shy gene, or an outgoing gene, or a gene with some other attribute, but in any case, a gene. In fact, of course, that's not the only way effects take effect. There's also like feedbacks, which are arrows that loop back. And even more disturbingly than that, there's reciprocal causation, which is the kind of causation I talked about in that book, Organism and Environment, because that is a very hard thing to think about. The environment affects what the organism does and is. The organism affects what the environment does and is. And you can't pull them apart. They co-construct, as Lewontin so beautifully said. They build each other. So interestingly, a very famous evolutionary biologist told me that Richard Dawkins hates reciprocal causation. Now, in my view, you cannot hate a type of causation. <laughs> you don't get to do that. You have to look at the world. You have to look at the world, right? And the world is doing that. Well, we just had this conversation a couple of days ago in the episode we released with Kevin Mitchell. He calls it spiral causation. That's nice. Right? That's Kevin's creativity. But I want to come back to plasticity because, you know, Cam alluded to adaptive plasticity. You intimated how adaptive plasticity, you know, that exists. Shade, sun, plants, all of those kinds of things. I think we can understand the adaptive part. But one of the pervasive ideas in that space has been 
maybe they're cost of plasticity, right? This is why everything isn't infinitely plastic. Where do you think the literature now stands on costs? Have we measured them? Do they exist? Have we been too simplistic in the ways that we've looked for them? Or what are you thinking? So I've always had trouble understanding why we should assume there's a cost of plasticity. And, and here's the thing. Everything else people study in evolutionary biology is like an adaptive trait. People have no trouble with adaptive traits. We don't have to say, for example, it's impossible for something to be infinitely adaptive or there's a cost to being adaptive. We just say it's like, yeah, selection gets to do that. Selection gets to produce an adaptive trait. But plasticity is different, right? So plasticity, it can't be perfect. Well, of course not. No adaptation is perfect. Obviously, because adaptation isn't perfect, because there's all kinds of other constraints. You know, only certain things are available to be the factors. And Well, it's just good enough, right? I mean, that was Darwin's idea. Survival of the fittest, good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Slobodkin's, you know, evolutionary poker game. You just stay in the game. So I always thought that was very weird, that we had to say, well, we know plasticity can't be perfect, you know, because then if plasticity was perfect, what's the rest of that thought? The rest of that thought is then, then everything is different than we thought it was. Well, okay, everything is different than we thought it was. <laughs> I have no problem with that because everything is plastic in, in the sense that no trait is fixed. Yes, there is time. Traits change their expression through time, through the you know, lifetime of an organism. Traits change on all different time scales. Some of them change in the scale of like milliseconds and some of them change over a scale of years, depending on the organism. And there is no such thing as, you know, the fixed trait state, the particular expression of a trait in an individual will be conditioned by all other kinds of things, the body size of the individual, the dietary status of the individual. So it's like people use a different lens to think about plasticity as if it's a special case. In my work, what became very clear is that Plasticity is development. In other words, those two things are the same thing. Plasticity is not a separate attribute. Development is plasticity. That being said, the particular pattern of expression, how much the expression of a trait varies in time in an individual, or how much it varies in different environmental circumstances, it can be a very small amount of variation or a very big amount of variation, depending on the trait and the genetic system and the environmental axis or the environmental differences. Yes, I get that. Some things you could say a particular trait might be more plastic in one individual or in one genotype than another, or one trait might show more plasticity in general than another trait. You know, head number, there's hardly any plasticity for that because... Yeah, because those individuals generally don't actually become alive. They end at an earlier point in their development. So, okay, I get that. There is variation in the expression of variation, right? But to say that plasticity is a special case of development, I think, misses something very fundamental, which is that every trait is influenced in its expression to some extent by environmental conditions. And we know that to the very deepest level because genes are differently expressed in different environments. And even the most mainstream, you know, very, let's say, conventionally minded evolutionary biologists 
there's no disagreeing with this. Empirically, there is no disagreeing with this point. This is what we did not understand in 1924, or indeed in 1956. Once we understand that gene expression is environmentally context-dependent, our understanding of phenotypic expression needs to change to reflect that. And that means that development is inherently plastic to some extent, depending on the organism and the tree. Yeah, in fact, Sonia, I'm not sure if you remember, many years ago, we met at a conference and I, I asked you about cost of plasticity. I said something very flippantly like, you know, well, if there's some costs associated with plasticity and then you stopped me and you said along the lines of kind of what you just said, why would you expect there to be, be a cost? And I, I had to really think about it for a while. And I, you know, I was part of a paper back in 2015 with Courtney Murren, Carl Schlichting and others where we reviewed the literature and there's very little evidence for these costs. So thank you for putting me on the right path many years ago. <laughs> I remember that conversation because we had both just written a very similar paper about like limits to adaptive norms of reaction or something like that. It was like 2007 or 2008, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember. So yeah, so in any case, since you asked, where the literature stands is people have done very careful experiments looking for a cost. You can find a cost to the expression of plasticity, just like you could find, I mean, sometimes you can find some kind of energetic or materials cost to the expression of any phenotype. You know, if you want to build a big shell, it takes something, you got to build it. it. takes stuff you can't use for something else. However, in terms of some kind of a, you know, the idea that there's some kind of a fitness cost to the capacity for plastic expression, no one's ever found evidence of that to my knowledge, and I think that's because we shouldn't have been looking for it in the first place. So that's an example of a kind of a metaphysical quantity. As scientists, we're supposed to look for stuff that's real, something we can observe firsthand, empirically, rather than something that we imagine to be there. So we don't look for, you know, tumors anymore in the, in the human body or, you know, we look for the stuff we can measure, basically. And we can't measure that thing because it is a metaphysical quantity, assumed that it has to be there because if it's not there, we have to think differently. Let's turn to the what we can measure, maybe what we should measure, because I, I find it really intriguing. Well, should, you know, in the <laughs> not going to dictate to everyone for, who, who gets to make those decisions. But you wrote this paper recently with Mike Wade that Cam and I really enjoyed. It took us a little time. I don't want to try to sell on anybody that, that this is going to be an easy read. Devote some time to thinking hard about this, but it's a fantastic paper. It's entitled Niche Construction and the Environmental Term of the Price Equation. How natural selection changes when organisms alter their environments. So maybe say a little bit about niche construction. We've danced around it, but we've not really connected it to plasticity. But how is niche construction a type of plastic response? Or is it? Is it a fundamentally different phenomenon than the plasticity we've been talking about? So the phrase has a long history. It was devised initially by Richard Lewington decades ago, and more recently was fleshed out in a book by John Erdlingsme, Kevin Leyland, and Mark Feldman. And the idea of niche construction is to focus on 
the ways that organisms change their environments. And like any very general term, there's a number of different takes on it. I will tell you how Mike and I use that idea to generate this model. We wanted to focus on the ways that organisms influence their own environments. That's the most general definition of niche instruction. It's the idea that organisms, by being in their environments, they affect their environments. The other part of the idea is that because they do that, there's a feedback. Because organisms change their environments, they change their own selective circumstances. And that gives organisms a role in their own evolution. That's kind of the heart of the niche construction idea, and I think that's the reason it's controversial for a lot of people, is because it gives organisms that active role in evolution. So what we do in the paper is we define niche construction in the following way, and many people have written very beautifully about one or the other aspect of niche construction, and we try to bring them together by including three categories of niche construction trait. The first is the way organisms can choose to be in one environment over another. So for example, in a very hot place, in the middle of a sunny day, a lizard will choose to go in the shadow of a rock instead of on top of the rock. Environments have spatial variation, and organisms you know, very often choose to locate themselves in a more favorable patch of the environment they're in. Plants do that through dispersal and by altering the angle of their leaves. So that's one thing, is to choose a better environment. Another aspect of niche construction is to actually change the external environment in some measurable way. So, for example, if a fish digs a burrow, there's lots of burrowing fish, or you know, or a bird builds a nest, or a mammal builds a little burrow that's insulated. These are ways of changing the environment to be more favorable in terms of temperature extremes. So those are two well-recognized aspects of niche construction. And the third one, which I was very determined to include, is plasticity. And here's how I think about plasticity as niche construction, because normal people think of those as separate categories. <laughs> that was the first time I'd ever seen it put that way, but it makes sense. Yeah, well, so that's the thing. It does make sense. So when organisms respond to an environmental challenge through adaptive plasticity, the consequence of that is to change the way the organism experiences the environment that's there. So, for example, so a plant in a nutrient-poor soil, it cannot add nutrients to the soil. But what it can do is increase its allocation to its roots and make those roots longer and thinner to more efficiently gain access to the nutrients that are there. And by doing that, it effectively experiences an environment where there's more nutrient ions. So, or an animal that expresses defense plasticity, it's not taking the predators out of its environment, but by creating some kind of a toxin or building a shell that a predator cannot chew through, it's, it's experiencing that same environment in which there are predators as one that is predator-free. So that is a more subtle kind of niche construction. And in my book, I, I talk about it as experiential niche construction. It means the organism changes its own body in a way that improves the environment it experiences. And that's a harder one to think about. So in this paper, we wanted to look at all three of those things because those are all ways that organisms in their own lifetimes as individuals change their environment. And by doing so, 
if you think at the population level, because this is population genetics, if you want to think about um, evolutionary change, at the population level, change the distribution of environments that the population experiences. And if they do it in a directional way, which means if, they, if these are adaptive niche-constructing traits, as they generally are, they change the environmental distribution of the population to one in which the frequency of the favorable environment increases. And as a result of that, the mean fitness of the population goes up. So that is a kind of a key insight, which is that organisms change the environmental distribution in a directional way, which is precisely what is not present in standard evolutionary models, starting with Fisher, and in the price equation, where we continue to assume that the second term of the price equation, which is the term which is structurally there to allow for evolutionary effect of the environment, that second term is assumed to be zero, because we do not consider the change in the frequency of environments that organisms themselves enact. Okay. And without a chalkboard, it's going to be really different to draw out exactly, I mean, even write out what the price equation is. But can you say a little bit about how it typically is used and then just, you know, generally the novelty of what you guys did with this part of the equation that's usually zero? Well, so the price equation is a way of structuring the elements or the factors in the process of adaptive evolution, basically following Fisher to say there's part of the process which results from change in allele frequencies depending on how much additive genetic variation is in the scenario. That's the first term. And then there's the second term, which is the potential effect of change in the environment because it is recognized that that environment could also have an impact on fitness, right? So it's a kind of an update. The price equation is a kind of an updating of, I would say, of Fisher's initial way of thinking about the sources of population change. And both of them focus completely on the genetic variance part, which is the first term of the price equation. And indeed, one thing I think is very interesting is that by definition, so one of the things we quote in this paper, a, a recent review about fundamental evolutionary theories. And in that paper by David Queller, a very distinguished population genetics thinker, he says basically, by definition, to be a fundamental evolutionary theorem it is essential to focus on the first term, okay? So in other words, we define evolutionary biology then as only considering the additive genetic variation as a source of evolutionary change. Okay, so we, by definition, only allow ourselves to look at genetic variation, and in particular additive genetic variation, as a potential engine for selection. So we asked the question in this paper, what if we don't do that? What if we include something we all know is there? There's no question empirically that organisms, plants and animals and other organisms do these things. There's no question, right? So we know this is going on. What if we figure out a way to include it in an evolutionary model? And so what this model does, which I think is very cool. So what, what standard models do, starting with Fisher, is to hold the second term constant by assuming it's negligible or, or even zero and vary the first term. That is, they, we vary the additive genetic variance in the system and we watch how that 
how the increase in additive genetic variants causes faster selection and greater selective change. That's how we've always done this. In this model, we do the opposite. You know, models are thought experiments. We do the opposite experiment. We hold the additive genetic variance constant, and we vary the environment part. And we do that by introducing what Mike calls the genetic possibility of a niche-constructing trait. And we do it for each of those three types of trait. And those models are very, they're very similar. And they show that one thing which is not surprising, which is that when you allow organisms to do this kind of adaptive niche construction, the population mean fitness increases as the frequency of the more favorable environment goes up. And that means that selection will favor the traits associated with that. So adaptive niche constructing traits are expected to evolve. And that makes sense because they have evolved. So that's good. So far, so good. So that's... Recreating reality. That's a useful model. That's, that's what you shoot for. Hallelujah. <laughs> yes, that's always nice, right? So that was the expected result. The unexpected result was what happened when we asked the question, if that's happening, if a niche constructing trait is evolving and it is increasing the frequency of a more favorable environment, how does that affect evolution on the rest of the genome? Because the environmental distribution is changing for that organism, not just for one gene, right? So when we ask that question, this really interesting thing happens, especially when we also recognize that the effect of most genes on fitness shows genotype environment interaction. In other words, the effect of a gene on fitness will not be the same in every environment. There are different possible patterns of variation in fitness impact depending on the environment. Not for all of them, but for, let's say, two out of the three main patterns, most prevalent patterns, in fact. When the environmental distribution changes in this way, the additive genetic variation for those traits increases. The additive genetic variation for other traits, not the niche constructing trait, increases because the population is being pushed toward that environmental distribution. And that means that when a niche constructing trait is evolving under selection because of its impact on the environmental distribution that has higher fitness, it increases the additive genetic variance for traits that will therefore accelerate their own adaptive evolution to the niche constructed environment. That was not expected. So that part, I mean, I, I can sort of think of two possible mechanisms whereby that happens. So which, which one do you think or know it is? Is it that selection is sort of changing the allele frequencies or is it more that it's releasing latent genetic variation? It's both. It's both. Okay. Or is there pleiotropic effects? Well, you probably didn't get into pleiotropy. I can imagine that makes things ridiculous. <laughs> well, actually, Mike is going to, he's hoping to work on a more thorough version of the model or to completely flesh out the model, including looking at linkage, disequilibrium, and pleiotropy, and so on. So he's, I think he's going to go in that direction, probably. But so that's what's so cool is that it does both of those things. It increases the additive genetic variance that is present, that is to say the genetic variance that is available to selection because there is fitness G by E in natural systems. So that's kind of the revealed part of it that Cam is mentioning. And once that happens, it increases the selective response. So the evolution of a niche constructing trait acts to accelerate the evolution on other traits. And it increases their narrow sense heritability 
because it pushes the environmental frequency away from intermediate frequencies of, say, two alternative environmental states towards a higher and higher frequency of the favored environmental state. Just as selection increasingly substitutes one allele for another, selection of an itch constructing trait increasingly substitutes one environment for another. There's an amazing symmetry in the system when you allow it to be there rather than assuming an unrealistic, negligible value for environmental change. So what we discovered in this model, which is super interesting to both of us, is that when you allow for what we know organisms actually do, the evolutionary dynamics of a very simple big A, little a type population genetic system are transformed. Here's the reason I am so excited about this result. What that means is that in the very language of simplified, you know, reductionist population genetic theory, in that very language, we have shown that the theory is missing something important in its own terms, in the terms of additive genetic variance. It is missing something that has a big impact on the outcome. Yeah, so I'd like to kind of circle back to this environmental term in the price equation and and also just maybe for listeners and for myself to kind of clarify, I think, one of the reasons, the main reason probably why historically it's held constant is this assumption I think within even like the standard quantitative genetic model, when we think about the environmental effects on phenotypic variants, we think of those as typically being random or directionless. So you had mentioned, for example, the, the plants that respond differently to sun and shade. And I think the assumption when we look at these models is often that like, if you take a bunch of genotypes and you distribute them randomly in sun and shade, a lot of the phenotypic variation that you see that's environmentally induced is uncorrelated with the underlying genetic variation. And I think what's it's been missing in a lot of these models, not just the price equation, but even like if we think about the Landy-Arnold equation, is that if we incorporate predictable change in the phenotype as a function of the environment, then you have the environment acting in a dual way, which is one, to generate variation in a particular way, and then it also acts as a source of selection. So that, and I think what's critical then is that there is genetic variation for the plasticity, which is also what G by E is. Not all genotypes in the population respond to the environment in the same way. So there's, there is this variation there. And that's so interesting to me because we have been largely obsessed with estimating heritability. And to do that, it's very context dependent. And we say that, you know, we want to keep the environment constant. But we have this other term, the G by E, which is the genetic variation in plasticity that rarely gets measured, even though we know <laughs> organisms experience variation in the wild. So It's like the one sentence in a genetics textbook that says the environment is also important. It's true. It's true. But this also, the sort of dual role of the environment and the strength of selection is another thing that I, I was trying to wrap my head around when I was reading 
the paper, which is that, you know, it's fairly intuitive to me that, you know, an allele that increases fitness is going to increase in frequency in the population. That follows. But when an organism either matches its phenotype to its environment, either by moving to a favorable environment or changing that environment, it's essentially reducing the mismatch between the phenotype and the environment. And the more you reduce the mismatch, the weaker selection becomes. And so that was the part of the model that I was struggling with was that if you take these niche construction traits as being adaptive and helping you know, the population in these different environmental scenarios, that should actually weaken selection and that should actually slow the process way down. Yes, of course, just as for additive genetic variants, the additive genetic variants gets eaten up by the process of selection. It's precisely the same. Yeah. No one, I mean, you're not troubled by that on the other side of the equation. No, but, but I was trying to understand there had to be some kind of covariance between the two sides of the equation. And by holding one side constant, I was struggling to see how, you know, holding one side constant could respond. It, it wasn't clear to me what the linkages were. Yeah, so there's an exception in there for a case where the magnitude of the overall environmental component compared to the overall magnitude of the additive genetic component. The answer to that is is a little bit in the weeds in the sense that that's a quantitative question. That's not a question about the way the model works. Every model has that limit, which is that just like the model that has a genotype factor and a G by E factor has the same thing. So you have to try to reconcile how they're both changing, and that's a kind of an algebraic problem. But I will also say the problem for me is more that this model, we're continuing to talk about genotype-environment interaction, as if those are two separate things that we can conveniently combine in a very controlled context. But the fact that you cannot take the environment out of the organism, and you cannot take the organism out of the environment, that conceptually, I think, is much more challenging, especially when you recognize that the boundary between those two things changes during the lifetime of an organism, during the lifetime of a population, and during the lifetime of a habitat or an ecological community. And the, the one thing we know about life and what makes life different than rocks is the change we know that is real, and we know that change is happening on all kinds of timescales all the time. And that's what's so distinctive about the processes that go on in living things. They are processes that are constantly like morphing and in flux and responding and regenerating and rebuilding. And that's what makes it life. And we have been ignoring that for a hundred years in evolutionary biology. It's the thing that makes us fascinated by organisms, and it's the very thing we have defined out of our models. You know, what's really been exciting to me in this era of molecular biology and molecular epigenetics and, you know, very sophisticated experimental tools and statistical tools, what's really been exciting is to try to meet the challenge of bringing life back into evolutionary biology and bringing organisms back, not as vehicles for their genes. That's absurd. To bring them back as living systems 
And that has been super interesting. I'm not yet bored. <laughs> After doing this for many years, I, it's still as interesting as it was on day one. Yeah. And I, I mean, what you're saying about our ability to do more with it than we used to do, that's what makes it really exciting to me. Because like, you know, in fairness, Fisher had to invent statistics to do what they were doing. Absolutely right. So now we have computers that, you know, he never would have really thought of. There's, there's the kinds of things that we can do that just was not even close to on the table. Yes. And we can study gene expression. So for, you know, for the first 15 years of my career, the last thing I wanted to talk about was genes because I did not see gene sequence as teaching me what I needed to know about what was going on. Now, expression. <laughs> I mean, yes, let me study that. You know, I mean, that's just, we are in a whole different world of understanding what genes do and how they do it and the role they play in these processes. And I think evolutionary biologists should get on board. Sonia, I've got to bring in the word that we've yet to say, but has been the point of many, many, many a discussion between Cam and me. You wrote another paper with Dennis Walsh and Armin Mochek on agency. So this is another one of these concepts, like niche construction and early when we started talking plasticity. I think we probably are talking about agency, but what does agency mean to you now? And is this that part of evolutionary biology, biologists doing their thing without life? Is agency part? of what's been missing? That is a surprisingly hard question, I think, uh, but thank you for asking it. So I think one difficulty is that the word carries a lot of baggage and that baggage is not useful for that term in science or let's say in biology, because if you want to ask a question about the agency of organisms in their own development and evolution, people are suspicious that you're putting something supernatural in there, or at the very least, some kind of you know, imputing free will or deliberate intention to you know, a squid or an alga. And I, for one, do not wish to do that. <laughs> that is not my goal at all. The agency idea, yes. I think the agency idea is to try to shift our emphasis, let's say. So our emphasis in much of biology, and certainly in evolutionary biology, our emphasis has been very single-mindedly on gene sequence, on DNA sequence. And that, that has, I think, painted us into a lot of corners, including the corner of what happens now when we want to know, can birds speed up their egg laying if spring arrives earlier, right? And I think there is a version of the concept of agency that can help us there. And that's what we tried to talk about in that paper you mentioned, which is to shift our emphasis away from DNA sequence as such, as a self-contained explanation for variation, let's say, why some people might get a disease and others not get that disease. That's the goal of GWAS studies, is to look for very simple correlations having a gene, having a phenotype. That is the, the very conflation of correlation and causation we have been warned not to do. That's what GWAS studies are built to do. And they do it because those sample sizes are often so big that there is immense statistical power to detect those statistical correlations. That's an approach which is based on a very, very simplistic understanding of where variation comes from. 
And what we propose in that paper is to bring in an idea of agency, biological agency, not human agency, to recognize that there are response systems, let's say in the causal space between the DNA sequence and the actual physiology and morphology and structures of the organism. There's a big space in there where the organism actually takes shape. And if you focus, instead of DNA sequence, if you focus on the processes that are influenced by environmental conditions, let's say, and by inherited influences of previous environments through epigenetics and through maternal effects, and if you include how the system that is operating in that causal space, how that system works. So for example, certain mutations may change a regulatory pathway and many others will not change that pathway because the pathway has its own resilience. If you focus on those resilient and flexible systems that are the ones that, you know, through which an organism actually takes shape and develops its physiology, then you're focusing on something where there's a lot more action. There's a lot more that is genuinely relevant to the outcome and you will learn more, you will expand your explanatory framework for understanding the causes of the outcomes. So for example, if we take on board that complex set of influences that is part of the regulatory and developmental system, then we can ask questions that we're now starting to ask like, if someone has certain genes, how does their exposure to estrogen affect their chance of developing breast cancer? Or if a person's paternal grandfather was in a community with very poor nutrition, how does that affect this person's likelihood to develop diabetes and obesity? And the remarkable thing is when we ask those questions where we are bringing in all of those other complex possible factors, very often the answer is those things are super important. Those environmental and inherited environmental influences that, that we ignore when we do something like just look at the DNA sequence, those things are incredibly important and they are filling in gaps in our understanding that we have been perplexed by. If genes are the way to explain human traits, why do these immense GWAS studies explain 6% of the variation in body weight? That's nuts. The answer is that's not what we should be looking. So the point is maybe to look elsewhere. And agency is a kind of a shorthand for focusing on this part of biology, the sort of response system part of biology. Yeah, so Marty and I argue a lot about agency, and part of it is my uncomfortableness with the baggage that you mentioned. But also, you know, I, I guess I have two issues where I struggle, because on one hand, I completely agree and recognize biological agency occurs. You know, there's no doubt that living systems develop, function, respond to their environments in ways that are adaptive. But my skepticism comes partly from how I've seen agency depicted. And for me, when I think about a system that exhibits agential behavior, for example, to me, that is a very natural outcome of natural selection, that selection acts on 
the integration of development and physiology and behavior and everything. And, you know, over time, any organism or system that didn't act in an agential way uh, has probably long gone extinct because that's not a very good strategy. But I've seen agency depicted also as something that seems to occur outside of the realm of natural selection, that it's somehow some something different, a, a property of complex system that sort of can occur outside of being a product of selection. And I see this, I think, in kind of the more philosophical literature of, of how agency is left out. How do you see agency in relation to selection? So for me, everything in organisms is in organisms because it evolved, period. Selection is just arithmetic. There's no getting away from selection. Selection is always happening. The question for me is not whether selection explains what we've got. It's what explains the stuff selection sees, <laughs> that selection acts on. So, you know, I totally agree with you. I am a biologist. I do not bring any metaphysics to what I do and to my understanding of organisms. And everything to me that we see in organisms is there simply because of past evolution, selection, and the other stuff that's also in there because of evolution, right? So I have no problem with that. And I, I agree that the word is loaded in an, in an unfortunate way, but I use it only in this very specific sense. And what I ask people is, give us a better word. And it's very hard. So I went to a wonderful workshop organized by Sir Pat, the much-missed Sir Pat Bateson, 20 years ago now. And the name of this workshop was The Active Roles of the Organism in Its Own Evolution. It's too long, man. It's too long. <laughs> so I agree with you. The word is a mess. The term means a million different things to a million different people. Some years ago, Evelyn Fox Keller, recently deceased, came to Wesleyan where I teach and she gathered, she had just written a beautiful book called The Century of the Gene, which a lot of people hate, which I personally love. And she gathered together in a room. She invited all the people in my university in molecular biology and physics and biology and neuroscience and all the people who are interested to come to this conversation about genes. And she asked each person, each of us, to define the word. And after, you know, 15 people, everyone's looking at each other like, oh my God, because every person in the room defined it differently. And finally, one of the molecular biologists who's getting really, really, really uncomfortable says, we don't need the same definition. We all know what we mean by it. <laughs> I don't really want to have to say that because we don't all know what we mean by it in this case, but it is true that we work as biologists with all kinds of terms that we define differently and understand differently. And that pluralism might be necessary. I don't know if it's okay, but it might be inevitable. <laughs> okay, so I have to, but I have to ask the follow-up question because in order for a term, even if we define it differently, to be useful, you know, we have to measure something. And, you know, one reason why I really love the paper that you and Mike Wade wrote is because, you know, there has been this debate and divide about, you know, do we need an extended evolutionary synthesis or not? And 
a lot of the arguments that niche construction has been left out or plasticity has been left out, I think have been largely philosophical. And I haven't seen many attempts to say, well, here's how you incorporate it. And so I thought that, you know, the modification of the price equation is exactly what we want because that sort of says, you know, there doesn't need to be a divide. We all can use the same sort of model. But when it comes to agency, what I want to know is, you know, if I'm studying fish or insects or birds, what do I measure? One thing that we do in that paper, which could be useful, is, you know, we very clearly articulate these three different aspects of agency. The first two can certainly be studied experimentally. So, uh, for example, you could set up experimental evolution of populations, and in one population, you allow individuals, let's say you're working with lizards, you allow them to choose their basking spots freely, which they will do to regulate their temperature. So you've got, you know, I don't know what, heat lamps or something in your lab setup or mesocosm of some kind. And then in another population, you don't let them do that. So you can ask the question in terms of the fitness of the individuals and therefore of the population, what happens when you do not let them niche construct? You do not let them choose their habitat patch. And what happens when you do? Probably lizards are not the best way to do this. I don't know. Think of a better system. Fruit flies. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, it, on some level, it sounds like you're talking about Martha Munoz and Ray Huey and other people that have studied the Boger effect, right? I mean, it wasn't an accident that I said Drosophila here. Ray Huey. Yes. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, honestly, I think in some ways... There's a great deal of work that has been done, not in these terms, but that we can use. So, you know, when I when I read that book, I cited something like 1,100 data papers, not by me. This is all work by other people that is presented in a completely different framework. But if, you know, if you look at it in this way, you can get information about this stuff. So there's all kinds of wonderful evolutionary ecology and all kinds of work out there to use where people may have done these things without thinking that that's what they were doing. The other thing you could definitely do is study cases where organisms, the effect on the external environment then feeds back. And, you know, famously, the people who study what they call eco-evolutionary feedbacks are, in fact, studying niche construction. Yeah. When we talk about niche construction, we often assume... You know, our, our minds usually go to, you know, the beaver building the dam, which changes its environment. But in many cases, and getting even back to Fisher and the fundamental theorem, one big way in which populations impact the environment is by increasing in number and increasing in density. And density dependence is sometimes a pretty nasty consequence of how organisms change their environment. So it's not always the case that modification of the habitat and changing of the habitat that organisms are in is always beneficial. Sometimes it can have you know, negative consequences. Absolutely. It will always have that negative consequence of resource depletion. And then that negative consequence will have other consequences, for example, on other co-occurring species 
that will come back to the spe uh, target species in you know either a positive or a negative way. I mean, this is what's so difficult, I think, is that once you allow for these sort of external effects, once you bring in the engagement of the organism with its environment, you open up a, a whole bunch of more diffuse causal processes, both going out and coming back in. And there are, of course, positive and negative effects. I mean, I think you're, you're very right to point out that there's no assumption that every effect is adaptive. No, I mean, there should never be that assumption for any aspect of evolution, right? And, you know, one of the things that I think has confined our thinking in the past is to try to separate adaptations from constraints. In my view, everything that evolves is always both. It's always constrained, and it is also always adaptive insofar as selection, you can't get away from selection. We've tried to decompose biology. I mean, naturally enough, we, we try to make things simple for ourselves. We've tried to decompose biological factors for a long time, including separating genes and environment, separating out these different categories as if they are completely autonomous. And, you know, at this point, the time has come to recognize that they are engaged with each other in very complex ways that do spiral as Marty said before, they do spiral through time because there's feedbacks over time, and that is a spiral. So it's very much harder to think about that process. And I don't know exactly what tools we will ultimately require to do that. So one of the words that I now find myself having to use to discuss the way that genes and environment jointly inform phenotypic expression is to replace the word interaction with the word entanglement. And the entanglement reflects the multiple generations of influence that all come in and the fact that those environmental influences are genetically conditioned. In other words, those two factors, environment and the gene, are not independent at any point because the impact of the environment is always genetically contingent and the impact of the genes are always environmentally contingent. And there are many, many layers of that contingent causation packed into each of us as individuals. And that is not simple G by E. And I don't know how we will turn that more complicated and more true recognition about biological causation, I don't know exactly how we're going to turn it into the kind of models we like to have to make predictions. What I do know is that we better start studying what organisms are doing in their environments because they are in trouble and we need to start to figure some of this stuff out. And just focusing on DNA sequence is not going to get us there. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, one thing we should mention, we do have the rise of AIs coming along. So we can use artificial life, potentially, or intelligence, at least, to help with the real thing. If they don't destroy us first, then maybe they can help us solve what it means to be alive. Um, thank you so much for your time. What we always like to do with our guests is just give you space to say anything or raise any point that we didn't prompt you to do. So what else would you like to say? One thing I do want to say is that one change I have made is I don't talk about plasticity as a field or as an area of interest anymore. I try to use the term ecodevo, which is ecological development, and my goal in doing that 
is to emphasize that development is plasticity and that development always reflects the environment. The thing I don't like about the term plasticity is that it does define a special case or a separate category, and I actually think that's wrong. I think what is accurate, what is biologically accurate, is to simply say that development is inherently plastic because that's what we know now about how things work. But what about physiology? Yeah, well, that's what I would say. I'd call it physiology. Agreed. I So I didn't make up the term. It came from a developmental biologist, Scott Gilbert. But I've talked to Mary Jane West Everhart about it, and she uses the term development to mean everything about the expression of biology, everything about the expression of the phenotype. And if you look, for if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, there are two ways to use that term. One of them means development in the narrower sense, like development of structures, and the other one means it's like this is what comes. It's like the realization through time, no matter what the trait is. Yes, and that's how she uses the term, the term development, and that is how Scott used it, I believe, in EcoDevo. So I'm okay with it, but I get you that there has to be that clarification. Yeah, and we left out behavior. When we say physiology, we leave out behavior or pick some other organismal phenomena, and other people are unhappy. So yeah, development is nice for that reason. Yeah, exactly. And then, but I think it's wise, you know, if you're doing something in writing, I think it, it sh- that should be said explicitly. It's not just about like morphology and structure. The other thing is about this idea. Yes, you're absolutely right, Cam. That the point of coming up with anything new in science should be to provide some ideas for doing different experiments and measuring different things and thinking about things differently, all of those. I do believe that an agency perspective, as articulated in that paper, does that. It points to some things that could be studied. But one of the things that is always part of what you mentioned about whether or not to extend the evolutionary synthesis is this. People who don't want to extend the synthesis or who are completely satisfied with what we have or what we've had, what we have had for the last 50 years, say we already have all this stuff. We already know about this. We know about plasticity. We know about, you know, extra genetic inheritance or whatever you want to call it. We've got it covered. So this is unnecessary. It is unnecessary to change anything. And the other people argue, and I'm one of the people who argues this, that there's a difference to what is made central to our explanations and what is made peripheral. And the only thing that is central in classical evolutionary approaches is the so-called, you know, the genetical basis of natural selection. The only thing that is central is the DNA sequence. And it does change you as a scientist, and it does change your experiments when you say, I'm going to make this peripheral phenomenon, like environmental inheritance or plastic expression of phenotypes, I'm going to push that thing to the center and I'm going to ask the question, if this is important, what would that mean? Or how can I determine if this thing is important? And when that is done, when people focus their experimental approaches, so standard experimental approaches prevent us from seeing those things because, for example, if you do everything in one control environment, you cannot see a role of the environment. Whether it's there or not, you will never know. So if instead you say, I'm going to ask the question in such a way that we'll see that thing if it's there. I'm going to bring environmental variation into my experimental design. 
that changes what you do. When you ask different questions, you have the possibility of learning different stuff. And Dawkins himself knows that, because if you read the introduction, as I'm sure you both have, to the extended phenotype, he says, this is not something you measure. This is a way of thinking. And we are scientists, and we have ways of thinking. And those ways of thinking determine what we expect to find, and therefore how we design our experiments and what questions we ask. And if we change our ways of thinking, we will ask some new questions and do some new experiments, and that will be good. Yes, totally agreed. What a wonderful way to, to wrap up. Thank you so much, Sonia. This has really been fascinating. We really appreciate it. Really great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know via X, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. Write to us at info at bigbiology.org. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Molly McGid for producing the episode. Thanks to Dana De La Cruz for her amazing social media work. And Keating Shimeri produces our fantastic cover art. Thanks also to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Baron, Tieran Costello. 